Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, a professor at the University of Copenhagen. It's my great pleasure today to be joined by Nadia Baer, an assistant professor of art history at Hamilton College, who's the author of The Decisive Network, Magnum Photos and the Post-War Image Market, published by University of California Press in 2020. Nadia, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. For most people, the history of Magnum Photos probably evokes an imaginary of daring do, fearless, highly individualistic male photographers, epitomized by founder Robert Kappa, who lived on the edge and literally risked death to show the world the horrors of war. Nadja's book sets out to contextualize these heroic narratives by explaining how the lone wolf magnum photographers were reliant on a network of office staff, editors, and clients who made their work possible. Nadja, perhaps I could ask you to talk about a phrase that hangs over your book and informs the title, The Decisive Moment. What exactly is the idea of The Decisive Moment? Yeah, that's a great question. The book is definitely framed and titled in order to play off of that really lasting notion in the history of photography. So in 1952, Henri Cartier-Bresson, a co-founder of Magnum, published The Decisive Moment, a photo book that really set out to embody his theory and philosophy of photography. Mm-hmm. And for him, the decisive moment is basically that split second when the photographer sees a perfectly composed, geometrically balanced scene, and he clicks the shutter just in mm-hmm. time. So it's kind of this moment when what is seen and what is captured align and the image sort of appears first in the photographer's mind and he's quick enough to capture it on camera. And so for me, that idea is one of the most cited in the history of photography. And for me, it extends into a metaphorical sense in that it places all of the attention on the photographer in his moment of inspiration, in his moment of inspiration, right? Working alone, he intuits, he sees, he takes the picture, he gets it and it's success. And so I was really interested in expanding the moment into many different kinds of moments, right? So as I explain in the book, there were many times when Cartier-Bresson and other photographers took pictures. They had no idea if the pictures they were getting were good. The people who decided whether the moment was decisive were the film editors, including Peggy Sargent, who worked at Life magazine. As at a certain point, she was called the negative editor, but she saw all of the negatives and all of the contact sheets of the photographers as they were coming into Life magazine. So she would choose the frames and then the picture editors would winnow it down and further choose which decisive moments should be published. And then the pictures that appeared in the magazine were in many ways collaboration between what Cartier-Bresson captured, what the editors selected. And in the decisive moment, the photo book, he actually took many of the same photographs that were published in Life magazine and reprinted them as exemplars of the decisive moment. And so for me, it's really important how these pictures were not just the product of his individual genius. Right. And of course... I guess our listeners do know this, but we have to remind people who are much more familiar with digital photography that this was not a time when you could see your photograph immediately after you'd taken it. Your photograph would only emerge in the darkroom and after the developing process. Yeah, exactly. And and in fact, Cartier-Bresson and other photographers had a really hard time going back to their films. One of the conflicts that I discovered in the Magnum correspondence 
was editors and staff asking them, please look through your film, please edit mm -hmm. down your film. Yes. Because they would go on the road, shoot a bunch of material, and unless they already had a preconceived notion of what they wanted to do with it, sometimes they would just dump it on office staff and say, you know, do something with it. Right. And Cartier Bresson would say, what excites me is the photographic shot. The rest they mm -hmm. couldn't care less about. Right. So as we've mentioned, our notions of Magnum are very much bound up with these larger than life personalities, Robert Kappa, Henri Cartier Bresson, David Seymour, George Roger, mm -hmm. Ernst Haas, Werner Bischoff. Are we wrong to associate the Magnum Agency with these legendary photographers? I mean, I don't think so. I think that they were incredibly important photographers, but probably for different reasons than most people think. I personally was really interested to discover just how entrepreneurial Robert Kappa was, how mm -hmm. entrepreneurial David Seymour was, yes. the extent of their collaborations and close relationships with magazine editors. These photographers were not important or talented just because they were taking good pictures, but because they were really building up the magazine market in this crucial post-war moment when, as I see it, the most important story of the 20th century had just ended, World War II. 1947, when Magnum was founded, was an opportunity and a challenge to rethink what photojournalism should be now that there wasn't a single story occupying the world's readers. And so for Robert Kappa and David Seymour to say, you know, we need to photograph Ingrid Bergman as she goes through life mm -hmm. in Rome because there's this budding film industry that's mm -hmm. intersecting with the globalization of Hollywood, intersecting with the rise of color printing and color technology, right? So one of the things that Robert Kappa's color photography is really spectacular and hasn't gotten enough attention. So with all of these different photographers, I think there are multiple unknown stories that make them even more compelling in some ways than the traditional, you know, Robert Kappa got close to the action mm -hmm. and died doing so. Yes. That's sort of a one-sided narrative, as I see it. So I guess in retrospect, Magnum has come to epitomize our idea of what a photo news agency is, but it clearly it wasn't the first such agency. How did it differ from its predecessors and its rivals? Yeah, that's a great question. Many photo agencies were started beginning with the turn of the century, beginning in the late 19th century into the 20th century. More photo agencies than we could possibly list because there were so many businesses that were eager to take advantage of the expanding printing industry mm -hmm. to supply magazines, newspapers, book publishers, all kinds of enterprises that needed photographs. And most of the time, picture agencies would really just source photographs. Who took the pictures didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Photo agencies bought the, uh, the pictures, the negative, the, the complete rights to the picture, and they would sell those pictures as they saw fit. And what Magnum did, and a couple of other photo agencies before it also did, including Allianz Photo, was to begin to credit the photographers yes. who were actually taking the pictures. And again, I, it's not a completely new model because we see incrementally over the course of the 20s, 30s, into the 40s that photographers begin to be credited. What was new is that Magnum insisted that the photographers and the photo agency keep the negatives. So if, for instance, yes. a story was sold to life, Magnum had to get everything back, all the material back, so that it wasn't sold in its entirety over to mm -hmm. Life magazine. So they could resell the rights to those images. 
And it's interesting that you say that, you know, it's the best known photo agency. In some ways, it's known as a photo agency, but it's known as not a photo agency. Yes. Because the idea that Magnum was set out as a genius business right. has somehow been lost in this effort to establish Magnum as something more than a business, right? So the yes. idea that that Magnum was established in order to allow photographers to do what they wanted, to shoot the story yeah. that they wanted. That idea is intrinsically at odds with what a photo agency does, which is aim to maximize clients and aim to meet the market demand. So within the narrative of Magnum, the idea that it's a business is lost when you look at the typical description of what it's supposed to do. Yeah, so there is this paradox at the heart of Magnum. It's the non-photo agency photo agency that somehow yeah. stands above the category that it also has helped to create, which is a, yes. a sort of a meta-narrative of what it is to be a photo agency. Exactly. Your book places a lot of emphasis on the role of women in Magnum. It's a, one of those narratives of hidden figures, if you like. Can you say something about the gender dynamics of the internal workings of the Magnum agency? Yeah, absolutely. So when most people think about the women at Magnum, they'll name figures like Eve Arnold or Inga Morath, who were the first female photographers who joined in the mid-50s. Maria Eisner, who was a photo agent in interwar Paris and who was one of the co-founders of Magnum. For me, these figures are definitely important, but I started in years and kind of in reading the Magnum correspondence I started to become interested in all of these women who didn't even have last names a lot of the time, yes. who were signing the memos to the photographers, the the Yvonnes, the Olgas, the Ingas, you know, and people who didn't have Wikipedia pages were hardly mm -hmm. ever mentioned in any footnotes. So women were hired to run the offices. Um, they were the ones who edited photographers' films. Mm -hmm. They sent them letters saying, you know, you really need to change out this lens or you need to shoot more vertical shots so that you have a better chance of getting a cover for this magazine. They were the ones who dealt with magazine clients. They often negotiated prices. And then they did all the kind of secretarial duties. And these women, as I see it, were really integral to propping up the photographers and, and grounding them because photographers were out in the field, they were traveling, and they had no way of knowing if the pictures they were taking were good, if anybody was buying them. So they also ended up being kind of an emotional sounding board, a support network mm -hmm. um, on many different kinds of levels. And somebody like Inga Bondi, who started as a secretary to Maria Eisner around 1950 at Magnum, stayed there for over 20 years. And I like to kind of call her the Peggy Olson of Magnum mm -hmm. for anybody who watches Mad Men. You know, Peggy Olson was the secretary who started as Don Draper's secretary and became an ad executive. And Inga Bondi at Magnum within a decade, because she was supported by photographers to build certain relationships with editors like Alexei mm -hmm. Brodovich and Alexander Lieberman at Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, she began to specialize in certain markets and really helped the agency towards advertising work and towards industrial photography and became an executive editor in her own right, forged relationships between Magnum and the museum world, being really responsible for the inclusion of Magnum photographs 
in the exhibitions that created yes. catalogs, which is why we remember certain Magnum photographs to begin with, is because she placed them in those settings. Right. Yeah. It is, as you say, hard for us to imagine now just how difficult communication was between many of these photographers and the offices that they were working with in New York and Paris in the absence of the kind of technologies that we take for granted today. Half the time, the photographers had very little idea what was going on at head office and head office had very little idea where the photographers were and what they were up to. Yes, especially in the beginning when the photographers were taking very long trips. Cartier-Bresson took a three-year trip throughout Asia. (laughs) But even on shorter trips, they could be taking pictures, focused on sending them back quickly in time for them to be printed, possibly not seeing the tear sheets, the what it actually looked like Mm -hmm. in print, until months later when they had come back to the offices. Right. One of the most fascinating passages of the book for me is where you quote a 1960 memo from Inga Bondi, who you just mentioned, where she asks, what is the you we are selling? How is your you different from the 18 others in Magnum? Why you and not the next guy? And reading that, I was wondering, did Magnum really pioneer the idea of building a personal brand, which is something that we're so familiar with today in this age of social media, where everybody's trying to, to brand themselves? This seems to be a rather early articulation of a notion that is now incredibly familiar to us. Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is Inga Bondi got a lot of pushback to questions like that. In some ways, she was asking photographers that because she was mingling with ad executives on Madison Avenue. It wasn't necessarily because Magnum was creating that idea, but because Magnum was learning from Mm. the advertising industry and from public relations where those ideas had already taken root. And so she was really trying to push the photographers to take on that way of thinking. Certain photographers got it really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I sort of see a division between the American and the European photographers. Figures like Elliot Erwitt, who joined Magnum in the 50s as a photographer and still has a brilliant career in advertising Mm -hmm. photography. He got it right away. You know, he developed the few things that he was going to do, and he did them exceptionally well. He took the IBM typewriter. He took it all over the world. He photographed it in funny settings. You know, he added Mm. humor to his photographs. He knew how to brand himself. But other photographers were incredibly frustrated at these questions, and they saw it as the influence of American capitalism on Mm -hmm. an enterprise that for them needed to be European at heart, Henri Cartier-Bresson, George Roger, who was based in the UK, they were very frustrated by this push to think in an advertising fashion, so much so that they proposed that Magnum had never been founded to do this kind of work Mm -hmm. in the first place, even though, of course, they were talking about public relations in the 40s. It just hadn't all become as entrenched and professionalized as it had by the 60s. Right. I mean, perhaps the most revelatory part of the book for me was your extended discussion of all these commercial projects that Magnum undertook for Standard Oil and other corporate clients. Can you say something about that aspect of the agency's work, which obviously relates to this division that starts to emerge? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Magnum begrudgingly admits that advertising and corporate photography needed to happen around the 70s when illustrated news magazines began to close. And so it will say that in search of alternative markets, photographers decided to start doing things like annual reports. And what I found is actually that 
founders. And this is another reason, you know, to, that I talk about the entrepreneurialism of these founders. Mm-hmm. And I think they are important is because they recognize that these would be important markets that would fund the photo agency's operations beginning in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't as much of a distinction between editorial and advertising or industrial photography as would emerge later on. And one of the things that I try to show and analyze in the book is that when they did things like shooting stars on screen for these Hollywood productions that were taking place in Europe in the late 40s, early 50s, they were doing it in the style of editorial photography and selling it often to magazines as news stories. So the boundary between what was industrial promotion, what was news, was really blurry in the beginning. And even by the time that they started working for Standard Oil, which happened in the early 50s, Standard Oil and other corporations, Standard Oil happened to be one that I found a lengthy paper trail on. And so I felt I could really kind of flesh it out. But for every corporation I mentioned, there are dozens of others that Magnum did work for, but that I just couldn't find as much of kind Mm -hmm. of an archival base. So Standard Oil and companies like that turned to Magnum because they were great photojournalists, because they knew how to photographically explore a story. And when they assigned them to do things like document oil exploration in the Sahara, they asked them to work in exactly the same style and mode Mm. that they did when they worked for Life magazine. They wanted them to seek out the human interest element. They wanted them to work in color and black and white, shoot verticals and horizontals, take the action shots and everything. So stylistically, also, it worked in Standard Oil's favor to have Magnum's photography for Standard Oil be indistinguishable from what it was publishing in the news magazines. Mm. Yes. It's also why I push back against using this term of commercial photography, which is what advertising and public relations photography is often called. You know, all of Magnum's photography was for sale. It was always commercial. And so I like to think about the work that it did for Standard Oil, for instance, as these corporate news pictures, Mm -hmm. right, where it's really about blurring the style and trying to find the newsy element to corporate operations. Right. Now, you talk in the book about a new global imaginary that was invoked and arguably partly created by Magnum. What exactly do you mean by the Magnum global imaginary? So... I started to mention this a little earlier, but you know, I, I see that one of their main challenges for these photographers in 1947 was that readers of magazines such as Life had now, because of World War II and the incredible amount of photographs and film that came out of the war, they had a relationship in their mind to different parts of the world. They mm-hmm. knew about the Pacific. They knew about yes. Europe. And so they wanted, their their sense of the world had expanded as a result yes. of this global media coverage. So one of the challenges, I think, for Magnum was how do you continue to keep people connected to this world that they now knew about? And working with editors, and again, I constantly kind of have to say the but, you know, I don't think it was Magnum alone, which is why it's the network. It was Magnum mm-hmm. in collaboration with editors or publishers. Right they began to think about how can you turn everyday people living around the world into stories, right? And so the human interest story 
which is a trope of journalism that mm -hmm. becomes exploited in the 19th century, becomes expanded after the war to global dimensions. So you have Magnum doing things like documenting the life of a young person coming of age around 1950. But because Magnum had so many photographers and they were able to coordinate assignments and think kind of editorially and synchronize what they were working on, they would send a dozen photographers out to do the same kind of story, but in the mm. different parts of the world that yes. each photographer specialized in. And then again, here's the importance of the editors that they worked with. The editors would then pool these pictures together. The editors that could be at Ladies Home Journal, where John Morris was the editor who put together People Are People the World Over in 1948. Or it could be the editors of Holiday Magazine who did Magnum's Generation X and Generation Women series in the 50s. Yes. And they would, working with the photographers and the Magnum staff, put together these global surveys of what everyday life looked like around the world. And initially, these stories were more political, I would say, than what they became in the 50s. So mm -hmm. something like People Are People the World Over, which Magnum produced in the late 40s, it was the first coordinated assignment that the photographers worked on, was very much made in the spirit of let's not blow each other up. Right. It was made right. in the moment of you know post-Hiroshima, and it was a photographic effort on John Morris's part to show that people are the same all over. And there was, especially in the American press, at life, a lot of posturing and a lot of pushing for America to, to expand its atomic warfare skills. And so as a result, these photographs were sort of needed to temper those global imperialist aspirations. Mm -hmm. And as the 50s wore on, the surveys in Holiday Magazine became less political and they became sort of more glamorous. And as I sort of note, they even began to map onto when photographers were doing things like working for Standard Oil and shooting movie stars. And so the everyday person became more glamorous, more exceptional, you know, less everyday. Also kind of reflecting that photographers were themselves becoming a bit of a celebrity, unlike what they were in the 40s when they were really just traveling around the world, documenting how people were rebuilding, reconstructing the, the war-torn world. Right. I mean, listening to that, I, I guess you could take away a couple of things which you might or might not be saying. One, you, you could be suggesting that they were losing their edge as they started to, to become part of, of a system that the magna photographers saw themselves perhaps initially as critiquing. Would that be an accurate representation? I think that, that there were multiple impulses within Magnum at the same time. I actually think that the photographers were quite hesitant to express their politics. And yes. oftentimes the politics that were attributed to their pictures are the product of what editors did to their work. So John mm -hmm. Morris, who conceptualized people are people the world over, he was the one who was responsible for the text and the idea of the story itself. Mm -hmm. You know, people say it was Robert Kappa who kind of wanted to create this pacifist story. I'm not so convinced that that's mm -hmm. what it was. I certainly believe that photographers had their own politics, but I think they were always thinking commercially. And I don't mean that as a critique. And right. I think that, that when we do things in art history, you know, we read so much about the visual culture of the avant-garde, the art of the avant-garde, leftist art. As a result, 
there's very little written about commercial visual culture, about the aesthetics of capitalism, if you will, right? And so I'm interested in not only critiquing these photographers, and I don't primarily critique them, but I am interested in seeing, okay, well, if globalization is taking place, if America's role in the world is evolving in these different ways, then how does photography, photojournalism, um, magnum photographers who are, after all, left-leaning European immigrants who are reinventing themselves in America after mm-hmm. the war, how do they align themselves with it productively? And, you know, I don't think that they would have been doing all of this if it were a daily sort of sacrifice of their political vision. I think that they learned a lot from their corporate partners. Um, they learned how to take better photographs. They learned how to use color. So I think those are valuable narratives as well. So I definitely hesitate to think of them as selling out or moving yes. away from a global politics that they were right. embodied. Yeah. Right. There's another way of looking at the same questions would be to say that whilst audiences for the early work of the Magnum photographers, say the Kappa's works in the late 30s or, or during the war or the beginning of the 50s, they become desensitized by the time you get into the 60s, say, and there's a need to reinvent the idiom in a way that you can capture people's imagination because nothing is going to shock in quite the same way anymore. Yes, I think that's true as well. And I think there's just so much segmenting of the audience, right? You have 30s publications that Kappa and Cartier-Bresson were working for, publications like VU, like AIZ, you know, these were political publications that were read by readers who were predisposed to a certain kind of politics, to a certain take on the Spanish Civil War or the labor movement. And by the post-war period, there's kind of two things happening. On the one hand, the rise of these magazines that are attempting to grasp and, and to pull in all kinds of readers, regardless of their political spectrums or these general interest magazines. But then you also have a market segmentization in terms of lifestyle magazines that are prioritizing things like people's hobbies and their interest in traveling the world rather than necessarily their political perspectives. And so the photography is being channeled into these different kinds of magazines, which is not to say that a general interest magazine such as Life didn't Mm -hmm. have politics. It certainly did. And I think you can see the, the variety of political angles very clearly when you compare European magazines to American magazines, for instance, the general Mm -hmm. European publications to the American. Right. And as you've already alluded to, from the 1960s onwards, tensions grew over the identity and indeed the the positionality of Magnum involving key players like Henri Cartier-Bresson and Cornel Kappa. Was this a battle for the soul of Magnum, as you see it? I see it as a generational shift. And it was a test to see what would happen to Magnum after the founding generation has either died or retired. Mm-hmm. I think that in the effort to move Magnum into the future, conversations about what Magnum really was in the beginning took place. Mm-hmm. But I, as I see it, those conversations, the founders who were still alive by the 60s, which were Henri Cartier-Bresson and George Roger, they were themselves reinterpreting what Magnum meant. They were saying things like Magnum never set out to be a commercial enterprise. 
But it turns out you don't start a photo agency if you're not aiming to create a commercial enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. And so the terminology changed. And I actually see more continuity in Magnum's history than Roger and Cartier-Bresson did. You know, I don't think that there was a pure essential soul of Magnum that had to be revamped. Mm. And so that's why I talk about taking the Elliot Erwitt model because he wrote in a memo, he was Magnum's president throughout the 60s at different moments. Yes. And he said that what clients want is they want Magnum photographers. They want these excellent photographers of the human scene is the term that he used. And he also said, Photography has always been a commodity and it's always been saleable. And so he was kind of returning Magnum to the reality of what photography is. And that was really eye-opening for me. And I think he was really onto something there. On slightly different tack, uh, The Decisive Network is a beautifully illustrated book as befits a book on photography. And you've also created a very interesting website at Yale that helps us to visualize many of the network connections you discuss in the book. Could you talk a bit about how your project is informed by the visual and by images? Because it has to be very much yeah. informed by images. Thank you so much. Yes. For me, it was really important to reproduce page spreads in yes. the book. You'll see very few photographs. I think part of the reason that the history of Magnum and its photographers has been told in such heroic and limited ways is partly because its pictures have been taken out of context. Mm -hmm. So that visually we've forgotten where the pictures first appeared, how big they were, yes. the text that was next to them, the other images that were next to them. So on the one hand, it was really important for me to only reproduce as much as possible Magnum's photographs in context. Yes. And it was a huge challenge because of the scale of the work that Magnum produced. I talk about the information overload, the overload of memos and correspondence that photographers wrote to each other that I could only do so much to process. And the same when it comes to its image. For every page spread I reproduce, there are hundreds of others that I could have. And so part of the reason that I began a digital project was to, and I'm continuing this work, is to create a gallery where one could peruse care sheets and photo essays more readily. It's a huge research problem for me because there are only a few publications that are digitized, such mm -hmm. as Life magazine. And those that are digitized and easily accessible are the ones we tend to write about. Yes. So Holiday magazine, National Geographic, Fortune, but then also European magazines, Perry Match, Epoca. Mm -hmm. These yep. are all publications that were so important in their day, but that we just don't have a way of knowing. And so we end up seeing something in Life magazine and reducing our ideas of photojournalism to life. It was really important for me to move away from that. Which, so that explains part of the reason that I chose the illustrations that I did mm -hmm. and why I became so interested in tracking Magnum's stories into their different publication contexts all around the world, which was itself quite challenging. Mm -hmm. But that distribution was so central to Magnum's business model. And then in other places, there are a couple of montages that we created for the book yes. just to kind of give readers a sense of there is so much more to be seen. And when you flip through Illustrated Magazine in, that was produced in England, or when you flip through Epoca, you need to understand that there were so many Magnum photo essays in addition to other ones. So communicating the visual overload, the image overload of the world that I described was definitely at the back of my mind. 
And I'm, you know, I'm happy with how the book looks, really happy with it. But I still think that there's more that we can do as scholars to help students, to help readers really immerse themselves in this visual climate. And that's something that I'm continuing to work on. Yes, that rather brings me to my last question, which is where do you go next with your research on Magnum and this photographic post-war world? Because as you say, there's an enormous amount out there. Are you going to work on more publications on this or do you have at some point to move on and get on with the rest of your life and change topic? Yes. (laughs) So I'm doing a combination of things. The digital project that I've started on Magnum is a project that I hope to continue to expand if I have the partners and the resources to do it. So I would like to create, and Magnum is quite supportive of this, a larger photo gallery, essentially, and a resource for students and the general public to be able to see more of this historic work in print. So the decisivenetwork.com is a project that I continue mm-hmm. to work on. I'll be presenting on it in next week, actually, hoping to bring right. European partners in. Mm-hmm. But as far as new scholarship, Magnum has led me to become very interested in the figure of Cornell Kappa, the Kappa that people don't usually think when they think of Robert Kappa. This is his younger brother, who was the reason that we know that Robert Kappa existed in the first place. He was the one who built up Robert Kappa's legacy, who created the first exhibitions, monographs of Robert Kappa's work, and who ultimately founded the International Center of Photography, ICP, Yes. in 1974. And so I'm actually now deep into Cornell Kappa's papers at ICP and hoping to create a crossover between a social biography and an institutional history of ICP and Cornell Kappa, because as I see it, he was so influential for so many of the ideas that we have about documentary photography and what photography was in the past and what it should be in the future. He was working in the 60s and 70s at a moment when photography began to be sold on the art market and you had collectors begin to buy photographs at auctions, sell them to museums and create an artistic canon of photography. Mm-hmm. And Cornell Kappa was working alongside people like Sam Wagstaff and Harry Lunn and the dealers, but he was creating an alternate lineage of photography that included his brother but that was really about photojournalism and documentary photography. And so I'm really interested in putting him back into that context. So that's kind of where I'm working out. So I'm setting Magnum aside, but it's almost kind of the second chapter. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does sound like something of a sequel project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nadia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope we've helped to boost interest in your book and we'll encourage people to find out more about the backstories behind what nevertheless is the legendary Magnum Photo Agency. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Duncan McCargo. I've been in conversation with Nadia Baer of Hamilton College, whose groundbreaking book, The Decisive Network, Magnum Photos and the Post-War Image Market, was published by the University of California Press in 2020. You've been listening to the New Books Network.